Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast with Andrew Teacher. And I'm joined this week by Jonathan Murphy, who's boss of Assura, the listed real estate business that works largely with NHS GPs, building state-of-the-art facilities across the country. Jonathan, fantastic to see you. Now, there's a lot to discuss this morning and quite a big shift recently in attitudes towards the NHS. Well, not necessarily towards the NHS, but towards private healthcare forming a bigger part of the menu of health services for people in the UK. I'd be interested to start by asking about how this potentially affects your business and the wider opportunities for investment, real estate investment in health services. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good morning and nice to see you again. So I think what we've seen over the last little while, as we've recovered from the COVID pandemic, there's the backlog in treatment has really started to be in the headlines pretty much on a daily basis, I would say. And clearly, when people are struggling to access services through their normal NHS services, whether that's getting a GP appointment or getting a hip replacement surgery, you know, people are looking for alternatives. And I think the opportunity for the private sector to help provide some of that capacity and some of that delivery is becoming more common. It's also really interesting to see that it's less politically sensitive as well. I don't know whether you've seen, there's been quite a few recent comments from the Labour Party where they seem to be really softening some of that negativity towards the private sector delivering care in health space. So I think we're a very mono delivery model at the moment in the UK. The NHS massively dominates. That's not going to change overnight, but I think the private sector's definitely got a role to play and it's a growing one at the moment. And there's obviously been a shift in spending. There was a big hospital building campaign that was trumpeted by Boris Johnson when he was Prime Minister, and that has obviously been choked off somewhat since. But there's still a degree to which funding in the NHS does prioritise hospitals at all costs, almost. I oh, know, absolutely. There's a massive bias towards spending on hospitals rather than in primary care. Now, it's really interesting because five years ago, the NHS published their own strategy document and they said that they needed to shift the percentage of spend away from hospitals and towards primary care. And five years later, what's happened? We've gone the other way. They're actually now spending an even greater proportion on hostels than we are on primary care because it's easy to prioritise the hostels because it's the massive unit that everyone knows. It's very visible. Whereas primary care, a lot of that happens under the radar. It doesn't make any bloody sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. And primary care is under the radar, but it's where 85% of your interaction with the NHS happens. But it doesn't get its fair share of the funding. Less than 10% of the funding comes to primary care. Now, interesting, again, I'm not trying to be political about this, but you know, Labour very explicitly said that they want to shift that balance if they were to win the next election. And they're highlighting the benefits of investing in you know community, treatment, mental health, you know, stopping people getting sick in the first place, which is the right priority, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, in fairness, Jeremy Hunt as health secretary also made similar noises about bringing social care more into the fore. But it just seems almost like there's a bit of an impasse culturally with the NHS. And I think I've seen it myself in the past where I've talked to GPs about non-traditional services, acupuncture, those sorts of things. But they're often dismissed because they're non-medical. And as a result, there's always just seemed to be this wider ignorance towards broader prevention of health issues. And you think, how many people would not have to go to hospital if we had better levels of education around diet, better support on preventative measures? That must surely be something that needs to be prioritised now. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, prevention and stopping people getting sick in the first place is clearly where you should be allocating your resources. The problem, I guess, from a political perspective is it's money today for results way down the line. Yeah. But that sort of holistic approach that you talk about, the fact that you should look at alternative treatments, looking at the whole person, that's absolutely huge. And that's something that we're really focused on as a business. So we've been pushing really strongly through our community fund, work with social prescribing networks, which is where you go to see the GP, but actually it might not be a pill that is the answer it might be that you're suffering from depression you're feeling lonely well actually the answer might be to join an art club or to join a walking club it could be something as simple as that Mm. which could make a difference so i think thinking about the whole of the person and all of those different elements is absolutely crucial so completely agree that that sort of approach needs to come to the fore and in terms of the real estate, so Jonathan, your business, for anyone not familiar with Assure, do you want to just give them the elevator pitch on it? Yeah, absolutely. So we're the largest investor and developer in GP surgeries. So basically think about anything outside of a hospital, and that's the sort of facility that we're providing. We've got 605 of these right around the UK, got a couple in Ireland as well. And basically it's all about providing the infrastructure for GPs to be delivering that out of hospital care. Because if you see a GP typically that is about one fifth of the cost of you going to A&E for the NHS. So clearly the more you can get treated in the community, the better for the NHS and the better for the system. Our focus is delivering that crucial infrastructure for the NHS that provides the space and the clinical facilities for the GPs. And in terms of your revenue, then it's NHS backed. Yeah. So we are, well, it's 80% plus of our income comes directly from the NHS. So effectively from an investor's perspective, if you're investing in Assurer, then you're investing in long-term government income with an inflationary undertone. And in terms of the market, market at present how active or passive are you having to be given everything we're seeing with construction costs the general malaise in transactions well, we recently had our annual results and I was talking to investors about the year just gone. And it was really interesting because the first half of the financial year was probably the most active we've ever had in the history of the company. We had really busy on acquisitions. We did a large portfolio disposal. You know, we were on site with more schemes than we'd ever been in our history. And then in the second half, like everybody, we got impacted by rising costs, rising inflation and rising interest rates. So we slowed down quite dramatically. So here today, we're still building out all the projects that we've started, mm. but we're being a lot more cautious about starting new ones. So this time last year, we would have had a pipeline of probably 20 to 25 projects that we'd be wanting to build. We've got five now. So we've slowed right down. And the reason for that is pretty simple, really. Costs have gone up. And as a result, to make the projects work, we've had to propose higher rents to the NHS. And at the moment, we're at an impasse because they're not willing to pay the higher rents that we have to pass on. That's not us increasing our profit margins, by the way. That's just literally us passing on the cost that we're incurring because of the higher construction And you work on an open book platform, don't you? That's always been your way of dealing. So when you're negotiating with the NHS at the start of a project, you effectively, you share with them what the cost of the land is, what the build cost is going to be. They allow you a small margin, then they calculate the rent off those numbers. So clearly, if those numbers increase, which they are, it leads to a higher rent. Yeah. I mean, in terms of of your debt how are you leveraged at the minute and what does that look like so we're extremely well funded from the debt side so we've got probably the best debt book in the industry all our debt is very long term and it's all fixed at well over seven years average interest rate of 2.3 percent and you know two-thirds of our debt is 20 30 plus and is the cheapest part of our debt box. That's one and a half percent, that interest that goes out to 2030. So we're extremely well funded. Overall, LTV's just crept over 40% because the values have come down slightly. But we're very, very securely funded. We've got an A- minus rating from Fitch. And do you see, I mean, some have called it a debt time bomb. I think it's probably fair to say it might be for some people more of a rate time bomb. But 
is that going to start to create opportunities in the latter part of this year around Q4 once people do start having to really stare into the barrel of refi? Yeah, well, we're very fortunate. We don't have any material refinancing for the next five years. So we're completely set fair and we've got cash resources available. Mm. So we're very much in the position where we're not concerned about that, but other people will be. You're absolutely right. And there could well be some opportunistic properties on the market that we might be able to take advantage of. Where do you think that's going to be? I mean, well, and, and, I mean, not just in healthcare, but I'm just interested more generally just from your experience in the sector, because we've obviously seen, we don't have to name names but we've seen numbers of the big fund managers gating their funds Mm -hmm. people are obviously going to have funds maturing other people are going to struggle to refinance at current rates and that impasse that we've had over the last 18 months i was going to say i would think is going to start trickling into a flood pretty soon yeah, I think in the general market, the broader market, that's definitely true. I think a lot of people are sitting on their hands at the moment and waiting to see some transactions to go through to really establish where current market values are. Mm. In healthcare, probably not so much. And the reason for that is because healthcare assets are generally bought very much on a long-term basis and they're funded on a long-term basis. So I think you'll probably see less stress in the healthcare space than there is in other sectors. And I've not seen anything yet. So today, we haven't seen anything on the market that would give us a window into an opportunity like that, but it could well be in the second half of the year. Mm. And we're very alert to those opportunities. And clearly, given our funding structure, we're ideally placed to take advantage of them. And what about repositioning? I mean, that would seem to be the obvious point. And you've already been doing a few quite prominent repositioning projects, haven't you, with Audi and Marks and Spencer, both ends of the spectrum. And this is something that we covered in a research report that we published a year or so back for Savills and Perkins. We're looking at life sciences. And one of the big discussion points in life sciences is, well, can we turn a shopping mall into a lab or can we turn an office into a lab? And I think a lot of people are going to lose their shirts, getting a bit overexcited on projects that don't quite work. But I'm interested from your experience with some of these retail conversions and what opportunities it potentially offers both on the NHS side and in the private side that we touched on? Well, there's a massive amount of logic in that because if you think about it, you've got unutilised space on the high street, which is by definition got good transport connections, it's got footfall, it's convenient for people to access. So clearly for them to be able to source their healthcare in that venue has got to make sense. Now, we've done a number of projects. So you mentioned the M&S. So yeah, we've converted an M&S store and we've done an Aldi store as well. They're not without their challenges, to be honest. There's some quite technical challenges in terms of the nature of retail properties. You don't tend to get a lot of natural light. Clearly, a health centre has very specific requirements, Mm. you know, air circulation requirements, light requirements, room sizes, etc. So there are challenges, but they can be overcome because we have done it on those projects. But as an overall principle, there's a huge amount of logic for people going and accessing health on the high street. And to what degree do some of those rules just need to be binned and updated? Because... Largely speaking, and we saw this during the pandemic, where we were building hospitals and car parks that nobody used and finally empowering pharmacists and other primary healthcare volunteers to get involved. You actually don't need to have the level of specification, I'm guessing, that is set out by the NHS. So does there need to be a bonfire of regulation where we can just say, actually, look, as long as we've got a clean room, as long as we've got some natural light, as long as we've got the right facilities for dealing with waste or whatever it might be, actually, we can use empty retail, we can use empty offices, because I mean, there's going to be a lot coming to the market over the next two years. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that COVID taught us was that actually, you know, having to be flexible and be nimble in response to challenges is absolutely crucial. And actually, in the early days of the pandemic, there was quite an amazing response from the NHS. And a lot of that was because the bureaucracy was removed and local teams were allowed to make decisions locally and just get things done. There was a complete shift in attitude. That didn't last, obviously. There's a lot of rules and regulations and bureaucracy which there needs to be, of course, around health. You've got to you understand, you know, it has to be... Oh, yeah, like, you don't just want somebody popping up in the chicken shop <laughs> no. and starting to perform cataract surgeries. No, but- there has to be some parameters, right? So there have to be guidelines, but there really does need to be some flexibility. You're absolutely right, because at the moment we're very restricted. So the conversions that I've mentioned to you, you know, some of the retail shops that we've done, we've done a couple of offices, they can actually end up being more expensive because the requirements of trying to meet those very strict regulations, those very sick room size requirements, Retrofitting that into an existing building is very complicated. So a little flexibility on the rules and regulations could unlock some opportunities and at a lower cost, which has to be the right answer. Well, also at a lower environmental cost, which Mm. we haven't talked about. And this is obviously something that Marks and Spencers ran into Mm. not so long ago with their plans to drop their Oxford Street building, which ended up being a national debate on retrofitting buildings. Now, clearly, if you're wanting to support town centre footfall as you've described with the MS opportunity then it makes sense to have a retro first approach doesn't it yeah i think the world has fundamentally changed i think the mindset that you just get an old surgery knock it down and you build a new one i don't see that as a viable proposition now so really interesting our first net zero project that we're working on which fits the high street theme so it was a derelict curry house of all things in fairham and we are converting that into a state-of-the-art children's therapy center we're using the existing building we're using the existing fabric we're completely improving the energy performance obviously we're changing the windows we're improving the performance of the fabric solar panels on the roof and we're going to get very close to net zero on that building we're reducing about 45 percent of the operational carbon and that's from using an existing building massive massive saving in terms of embodied carbon obviously so i think you're absolutely right i think a retro first mindset is going to be the way forward i also think from an nhs if it's going to be constrained from a budget perspective if they are flexible on some of the regs then actually retrofitting has to be a more economical solution as well so it's right for the planet and right for the nhs so i can see our business over the next five years really shifting towards that retrofit model as an answer in many locations and do you think There's a disconnect between the legal commitment that this government has made around net zero and the day-to-day practices of the NHS? No, totally. I mean, it's a farce, frankly. So there's a central commitment made, which is great, and it's one I support, and it's a bold statement. The NHS wants to be fully net zero by 2045. And then we're having live conversations at the moment on projects, and we're saying this is what it will cost. And they're asking us to remove the sustainability elements to reduce the cost of the building today. Who? This is what the local NHS teams are asking us to do. To make it fit their cost parameters at the moment, they're asking us to remove any sustainability improvements that are above and beyond what's required today. Whereas what we're trying to do is we're trying to build at a much higher standard than required today so that we're future-proofing the project. So give me an example. Give me a real-world example of something that one of our listeners could identify with. Well, yeah, we've had situations where we've been told to reduce the number of solar panels, for example, because they don't want to invest the capital. And the other thing about that, of course, is that massively reduces their 
running costs. So actually, they'll get the payback on that in four or five years. But that's the sort of short-term attitude that we see on the day-to-day. Because the computer's not looking at yeah. year four, it's looking at year zero. Exactly. That's exactly where we are. It has to change, though. So I'm very much a glass-half-full person. So this is what we're facing at the moment. And we've got a challenge where we're putting forward projects and the NHS are unwilling to pay. And our approach for now is that we will fund those improvements because we believe long-term this is the right solution and we want to prove to the NHS that actually there's benefit by investing in a net zero solution. So Ferrum, for example, we're funding all of that ourselves. The NHS isn't paying a penny for that. And we're doing that deliberately because we want to prove to them that it's the right solution and that it will save them money in the long run. Mm. So in five years' time, when we do the next one, we'll be able to charge them a higher rent because we can prove that it's worked. Yeah, and I'm guessing the operational data will be pretty easy to demonstrate. Yeah, well, we'll make sure we control that. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of going back to the opportunities that come with this change of stance around the provision of private healthcare, how does that potentially change your business model if you're dealing more with some of the more commercial private operators that are developing integrated health properties that have got diagnostics, labs, primary healthcare, scanning systems, all that sort of jazz, which is pretty standard outside of this country, really. What opportunities does that create for you? What risks does it create for Asura? Well, I mean, a lot of the principles are the same, obviously, in terms of healthcare, the space that they're going to require. It's trying to meet a similar need. The difference, though, is that the private sector adopts this much more wide-ranging approach. So they think about a facility, they want to deliver as many services as possible in that one location to make it as efficient as possible. There's much more of a focus on really working the real estate asset hard, so they want to make sure that it's fully utilised all the time. So they bring a range of things in. So whereas our typical GP surgery would just be consulting rooms, maybe a minor surgery suite and a pharmacy, that would be a typical setup. You know, For a private provider, they'd want diagnostics and testing. They'd want to be able to run blood tests they'd want to be able to deliver a broader range of care from that one it makes sense doesn't it i mean it's pretty stupid when you go and have a blood test at a gp they send it off to germany or wherever and it comes back a couple of weeks later probably with some errors yeah exactly and they can do those on site now if they've got the right equipment and they've got the right people on site and of course private sector does that and pays for that so i think it's an interesting model it's a broader range of services on offer i think it's also an area that we're going to see some expansion into we've already referenced you know the growing influence of private sector This isn't going to be dramatic. This isn't going to be an overnight revolution. But I think incrementally, the private sector will have a bigger role to play and, you know, clearly gives us an opportunity to provide them with the right infrastructure to do that. You know, from a risk perspective, it's slightly different, of course. So you're not dealing with a government covenant, you're dealing with a private sector operator. So you're swapping one risk profile for another, but the underlying requirement is still exactly the same. There's still a massive underpin for health space and health infrastructure in this country. So, you know, whether you've got a private bank on it on an NHS badge, the underlying demand is still just as strong. I would say most investors were pretty happy with a covenant that's got Spire, HCA or Bupa on the front of it, wouldn't yeah, they? Yeah, I would say so, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it is different though to NHS, but it's a very healthy covenant, absolutely. But also, I think there has been a big step change recently. You think about where we were in this country where any hint of privatisation of the NHS was a national outrage, and now you can book private appointments on the NHS app. I mean, it's a total overnight overhaul, isn't it? 
Yeah, there's definitely been a mood shift. There's no question. So I think what... COVID- <laughs> understatement of the century, a mood shift. <laughs> I think the danger, though, with the word privatisation is it's very charged, that word. So, you know, because what we're doing is we're still providing healthcare free at the point of delivery. It's just that how it's delivered could be done slightly differently. So it's definitely a growing trend. And it's really interesting that you see Labour being a lot more positive towards that as well. Clearly, current government is pushing that as part of the solution to the current backlog. So, yeah, it's a trend that's really really moving in that direction, no question. So, I mean, just quizzing you a little bit on the last set of four-year results. So you swung to a loss this year, a loss of $119.2 million after profit the previous year. What was the driver of that and what's going to turn it around? Yeah, that was just simply the valuation movements. Our underlying EPA earnings, which is sort of the underlying recurring profit, yeah. was up 6% year on year, which we were really pleased with that result. So that's the underlying cash flows from the rents that we're collecting. But the valuers, when they looked at the current rate of interest rates, they obviously decided that the values of our building had declined. So we had a 6.5% like-for-like decline in property values, and that switched the business into a loss so that's what drove Mm, but a more positive outlook than some of the bigger REITs and other listed firms at least yeah it wasn't really that big a loss I mean I'm not trying to be glib about losing money not at all but the relative scale of the loss was significantly below some of the larger players healthcare real estate's demonstrated again it's very resilient you know we saw a 40 basis points movement in our values offices I think have moved 150 200 so it's a completely different market and that reflects the underlying strength when we've just been talking about the healthcare demand and the use of you know private providers. The need for this type of space in the country still remains extremely strong and it's massively underserved. So that underpins fundamentally the strength of the business. Mm. And are you worried that a potential change of government could affect your business model, could affect the sorts of arrangements you presently have with the NHS? Because the Labour front bench has talked quite prominently about, on the housing side at least, mm-hmm. direct contracting of housing. So what's to stop them direct contracting NHS properties on a wider scale? Yeah, I mean, clearly, the political situation is something that we monitor very closely. And we engage regularly with all political parties to make sure that we're making the case for investment in primary care infrastructure. So we're constantly talking to the Labour team. I'm actually relatively relaxed. I think that their statements have actually been very supportive. They published their big NHS plan two weeks ago. Like all political documents, it was a little light on detail on how it would be done. But the real thrust of that was all about out-of-hostel care. It was all about prevention, mental health, care in the community, very much playing to our strengths. Didn't then say, oh, and therefore we want to build 6,000 surgeries, but it was very positive about that move. And, you know, Wes Streeting, who's the current Shadow Health spokesman, has been very open about, you know, the fact that it's a mixed economy and he's not against the private sector delivering services. So I don't see a significant challenge there. I think the other thing is, frankly, you know, if there was a change of government, the new government wouldn't have the money to directly build and fund these surgeries themselves. They just wouldn't have the billions to do it. So using the private sector, using private investors is a very sensible use of their resources. And of course, the other elephant in the room here is social care, which Mm -hmm. seems to be the hot potato nobody wants to catch. What do you see as being the solution here? And what role in that solution exists for businesses like Asura, other private investors, many of the private equity 
listed players that are circling around healthcare? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So the big problem you have is that interaction between the healthcare and the social care elements. So someone has had treatment in hospital, they can leave the hospital and there isn't anywhere for them to go and they get stuck effectively. Bed blocking is the phrase that people use. Yeah. So that's a big problem and real estate has a really important role to play here because the provision of step-down care, step-down, step-up facilities, which effectively almost act as a bridge between the hospital and either your home... Sort or- of short-term supported living, effectively. Exactly, so yeah. So- or rental apartments with care that can exist before people go back home. And lots of other countries do this. And they also wrap around specialist rehab in that situation. So physiotherapy, etc. So you're helping people recover, but it's in an environment that's a fraction of the cost of a hospital. So real estate has a really important role. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity. The problem at the moment is who pays. So when the patient is sat in the hospital bed, the NHS pays. As soon as they leave the hospital, the local authority pays. So the local authority is not incentivized to provide the facilities to get them out of the hospital. And so until you get them joined up, then we don't resolve the problem. It's a bit of an age-old problem, really, with NHS funding. Is A lot of it comes down to where you drew the line in terms of funding and bureaucracy. Well, this is the problem I mentioned earlier on in the conversation around everything, hospitals are bust. Yeah. And it seems that, sadly, that's what's creating the bust. It's absolutely. And we've got a massively underfunded social care system. And it's something we've discussed in the past from the housing side, Mm. because I know it's something that many investors are circling around and companies like LNG have been tinkering with urban later living and many people just find it difficult to make it work for the reasons you describe and also just because of apathy from local authorities. Yeah, I mean, it's not an area that we're active in, but the need for senior living, especially senior living facilities, is absolutely huge. And we've got a real problem with our planning system that doesn't allow that. I also have a role within the BPF on the healthcare committee. And, you know, we're launching a report in a fortnight, which is all about the need to provide additional provision for senior housing, specialist senior housing, because it unlocks capacity in the current housing stock. It helps deal with some of the housing shortages we've got. And it saves money for the NHS because if you're in the right type of facility, it reduces slips and trips, it reduces loneliness, it reduces demands on the system. So there's a real requirement for that. As a business, it's not something that we've looked at. Obviously, we are an income-driven REIT. There is an income model in the US, but in the UK at the moment, there isn't really an income-driven model in senior living. So as an investor for us at the moment, it's not the right space for us. But I think as a country, we absolutely need more provision. And where do you see your business evolving too as we look towards not just this mood change on privatization but also just the step change that we're seeing with different kinds of technologies so much more diagnostic work can be done at home using portable gear so much more could be done even with a humble smartphone i say humble sarcastically but the point is that there is a lot more you can do at home Mm. there's a lot more potential for community-based primary care and support and diagnostics and scans and tests are all becoming really, really cheap. So that presumably creates a huge opportunity for you to use the embedded position that you have in this market and leverage it to a broader swell of investors, a broader swell of solutions. Yeah, I mean, the role of technology in healthcare is going to increase massively over coming years. And clearly that is going to change the way that healthcare is delivered. And for us, we need to make sure that the buildings that we have are adaptable and can enable that future delivery model. So that's something that all of our projects have flexibility built into them. The rooms can be remodeled and repurposed if they 
they needed to. And in general, working on some of these solutions is going to be crucial. The good thing is, you know, some people at the time of the pandemic, when people weren't seeing doctors face to face, we did get questions about, well, do you even need a GP surgery going forward? Because clearly you can just do it all from home. And I think it's come home really clearly that that absolutely isn't the case. You need that physical interaction and we need to be providing that space that can do that and provide that broader range of services that we were talking about before. Mm. One thing I did want to ask you about, we are soon to be launching a campaign around non-visible disability where we'll be looking to bring to the fore debate around how the built environment, buildings and places just can be designed to cater for people with conditions that aren't visible. And that might be autism, visual impairment, hearing loss, whatever it is. And we've had some amazing conversations with some of the big REITs, some of the big landed estates who are fully on board and supportive and have talked through some quite interesting and often quite small and subtle changes that they've made. And it might just be changing the colour of lights mm -hmm. in, in shopping centres or turning the music off one day yep. a week so that people can shop. And I know that's something you've actually been doing. So I hope you'll be supportive of the campaign and it's something we'll, we'll discuss afterwards. No, but absolutely. Massively supportive of that. So we did a specific initiative in Worcester. You know, the Cinderford Medical Centre. Yeah, yep. and we built that and we badged it as Designing for Everyone. So it's the first dementia-friendly medical centre in the UK. There's been a lot of research about the impact of building design yeah. for neurodiverse people in terms of care homes, but no one had looked at it in a more broader healthcare setting. So we worked with the local university. We came up with a design guide. It's called Designing for Everyone, and we're rolling that out on all of our future projects. So it is, as you say, some really simple things like signage, like about how you position the reception area, the types of floor materials you use. It didn't add a great deal to the cost of the building, but it made it massively more accessible for people with, as you say, unseen disabilities. Mm. And what were some of the other things that you did with that? It's things like very clear signage, having very clear zones so you know exactly where you are in terms of the waiting area versus the clinical area, really clear delineation of admin space from clinical rooms, yeah. you know, really obvious colour signs, physical signs, etc., and different materials that we were using in the construction and the fit-out. Do they have to have different sorts of training provided for staff as well? As part of the project, we work very closely with the local NHS team to explain to the teams exactly what we were doing and why and the sort of things we were trying to do and that included using some VR headsets to show people so we gave people a VR headset to wear walk around the building and it gave you an idea of how that building would come across to someone who was suffering from dementia because it does change your perception and the way that you perceive color the way you perceive light so yeah training the staff was a really important part of it we've had a really positive response to that from the local NHS team and it's a really good example of the type of thing that we're very keen to do. Nobody asked us to do that. No one was even pushing for it. It was our initiative because we've had a long-standing partnership with Dementia UK as our charity partner. And we saw it as an opportunity to do something with the way that we operate, which is an important tenant for us, that we don't just sort of make a few quid donation to a charity. We think about, well, actually, how do we run our business? How do we do our business? What can we do differently to make a difference with that? Mm. Well, that's really fascinating. And it sounds like exactly the kind of thing the wider industry could massively benefit. And it's really simple. Literally, it's, the building was sort of four and a half million pounds. It was tens of thousands of pounds extra it cost us. Mm. And we've made it publicly available. The tool is So people is can available. find it on Asura's website. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, that's really fascinating. And I think particularly as we face into an aging population, these sorts of things are going to become 
a lot more critical, aren't they? In yeah, all absolutely. Sorts of places. Yeah. Well, look, fantastic to see you back here, Jonathan, and great to hear about plans. Good to chat and get under the skin of everything as ever. And best of luck for the rest of the year. I mean, I'm sure the tide will turn very quickly, and it looks like there's many, many opportunities for you coming up over the next few quarters. So, Jonathan Murphy, CEO of Assura. Thank you very much for joining. I've been Andrew Teacher, as ever. And you can subscribe to Propcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from. Do leave some comments, subscribe, share it with your colleagues and friends. And thanks very much for listening. We'll see you again very, very soon.